Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 10th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government has announced an extension of its COVID supports for business. Extending the COVID restriction support scheme, the CRSS, is being pushed out to the end of January. A move that will be welcomed by nightclubs in particular because their doors will remain closed until at least February. Additionally, there will be enhanced rates for the EWSS, the Employment Wage Subsidy Scheme. Uh, what we are doing is proposing an uh, extension of the November rates and the Employment Wage Subsidy Scheme up to the end of January. Uh, that will be uh, for all sectors of our economy, but for any company or employer to be on this, they have to be able to demonstrate a 30% decline in their business. So, uh, yes, there are sectors within our economy that are less affected by uh, the uh, change in public health guidance uh, than, for example, hospitality. But any company within that sector has to be able to demonstrate a 30% decline in business. These supports can't last forever, but will be necessary while COVID restricts the way we live. Exit of our entire economy from the uh, uh, public health guidance, which I hope will happen when we're successful with COVID, and then as we're able to change our emergency measures in response to that, I, I plan for it to be the case to look at how we can exit from all of this in a way that is careful and a way that is planned. This is not what anyone would have hoped for. We believed we would be able to introduce an alternative scheme, but it's simply not going to be possible to do that with the speed that we want and making efficient use of money. Uh, so for that reason, I'm going to make this change. Uh, and the change that we are making uh, takes effect from the 1st of December in recognition of the challenges that companies have been facing. Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance. Let's speak uh, to Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English, uh, Fing- Finnegale TD for Mead West. Good morning, Minister. Thank you for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, this is a, a necessary affair, uh, but it's also a very costly affair, isn't it? Uh, first of all, Michael, it is necessary, uh, and for two reasons, um, to try to protect the, the people's lives and to save uh, illness and pressure on the health system and to bring the virus back under control. We are 
bringing in restrictions that do affect businesses uh, uh, right throughout this. Uh, with the support of the taxpayer through government, we have supported jobs, we have supported businesses, we were, and that's what this is about. Again, keeping those businesses in a position that they can stay afloat to get through the next four or five weeks where they are restricted, and hopefully we'll be in a better place coming into January and February. It is going to cost money, absolutely. The, the decision, yes, it will cost an additional £200 million, um, and that's, that's a, a lot of money, but I think it's the right thing to do to try and support people in work, jobs and businesses to keep them afloat. As you, as you know, I think we discussed this last week, what there was, we were looking to try to bring in a different scheme to directly support those affected industries uh, through the crisp payments changes. That was proven very complicated and there was always a concern you would miss some companies when you try to do it sector by sector because even though, you know, you, we say it's hospitality that are affected, other businesses are affected by a knock-on effect as well. So I think the way subsidy is probably the best way in a short period of time to, to bring in the support and to reach those companies who need it and yeah, support well, those jobs who need support. I, I think nobody wants this. I don't think the companies want it, the government doesn't want it, the taxpayer doesn't want it, but it is an unfortunate necessity. Uh, I think there's been a, a broad welcome from industry to this uh, announcement uh, maybe that's a uh, better put by saying uh, a sigh of relief really I think that's fair assessment Michael you know we've been engaging with businesses a lot over the last 18 months but specifically over the last couple of weeks engaging with these sectors and their big ask was that we would keep the wage subsidy at the higher rate at the 350 that it was it, it's, it makes it easy for them to, to keep their staff close to work the whole idea of having the wage subsidy uh, in the first place was to protect people's income but keep them in a job and keep them employed because by having the wage subsidy as opposed to the pub payments you are still attached to your employer your job is still there uh, and, and in many cases you're still at work uh, and hopefully you'll get back to full employment and a full rate to, into the near future as well it's fair to say relief yes businesses they, they knew because government we had assured them that we would support them but they, they wanted they were concerned what way that would be done so I think businesses are, are quite happy uh, in, in relation to as you yeah. say as, as happy as you could be in these circumstances yeah. but they're content that this is there but there is also the extension of the race waiver for the first quarter of next year which is a significant amount of money for a lot of businesses as well as well as the Chris um, for those businesses who are closed but Michael I have to be very clear here I know, you know, and the businesses know, while these supports, there are 20 billion in total over the last 18 months, are still not enough to replace every lost euro. They're a great assistance, and many companies will be able to stay open because of this, um, but it doesn't re- replace all their losses, and I recognise that, and I think we have to bear that in mind this Christmas as we encourage everybody to shop local and trade local and try and support these businesses who are creating the jobs for all of us in very, very difficult times as well. Mm. I was listening to Leo Radker talking in the Dáil uh, a few days ago about uh, when the pandemic first came to our doorstep. And uh, the Tánaiste was saying that he'd been listening to the World Health Organisation and what they were saying about how long all of this might last. And had they said then that it could go on for two years, he'd never have believed it. Uh, And I suppose the question now is, how long might it go on for? And how long... Can we sustain it, given the expense that is involved in trying to get through it? Yeah, I suppose, Michael, two things on that. Um, first of all, where we are today is very different than, than, than last year, this time last year. Like the, the sectors affected now is mainly hospitality, mainly the play and leisure sector, indoor activities, nightclubs, entertainment, and all involved in entertainment and events. Like this. So they're, they're still greatly affected. 
Uh, but there's, there's a lot less businesses and jobs affected or restricted compared to last year. Uh, our, 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 as a society and as a community, we're able to move around a lot more freer than we did last year. Yes, with very strong advice around travelling and so on. But we are in a very different place thanks to the benefits of the mm. vaccination programme. And I do believe rolling that out continually and the, the, the third vaccine will again give us greater protection into 2022. So it should be again a much better year ahead of us than what's behind us in relation to the virus. In terms of... Um, Hopefully so, but I mean, we are learning as we go. We, and one of the things we're learning is that this is very unpredictable. We were to reopen on yeah. the 22nd of October, I think by the 30th of October, we realised we needed to go backwards. Right. Uh, and we don't right. know what's going to happen over the course of no, the next No, we, we don't. Months, and look, it is fair to yeah. say pandemics generally can last between two to five years if you look mm-hmm. over the history of pandemics. And um, we are in now into, into, year, into year two. Uh, unlike probably other pandemics years ago, the, the development of vaccines and antiviral drugs mm. has been so fast that we're in a stronger position to now probably live with this virus and the other variants that will come at us in the years ahead. So I think we're in a much stronger position. It is fair to say we don't know what will happen month to month. You can only equip yourself as best we possibly can to deal with that. And a big part of that is all of us learning how to live with it, which I think the Irish people have proven that we can do that extremely well and we've learned to adapt as well as the uptake of vaccines and support and recommendations and we will see the rollout mm. um, for children 5 to 11 as well into the new year. So we are equipping ourselves as best we possibly can. Can we financially manage this? I, I believe, Michael, I, I sat yesterday for a couple of hours with our, with our, with our social protection team, our labour team, our, our, our labour activation council team uh, and we were just looking over all the data and all the figures and there is a, there is a quite a quick rebound, not just in Ireland but across Europe when it comes to people in, in employment as well. Unemployment is down to 7%, a lot quicker than any of us thought it would be. I think we mm. all probably thought we'd still be at 10% this time of year. So that, that is giving us, that's generating money through jobs to, 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 to put back into support for businesses. And yes, the total cost of COVID will probably be close to 40 billion uh, when, this, when this is finished, even as it stands. But our economy are, and our jobs are recovering extremely fast. And the deficit is cut again. So financially, we're in a strong position. We come into this in a strong position with our public finances. And I think we can get through it. But it it is at a massive cost, both to people's own lives and and to economy as well. And not just uh, from the fiscal perspective and what uh, the state needs uh, to do to help people come through this, but people have uh, seen personal problems uh, financially uh, and there's been a double whammy especially for those who are out of work or who have lost jobs and, and indeed uh, the soaring price of energy uh, and energy bills uh, are becoming all the more expensive uh, just want to maybe take a, a second to listen to the aforementioned tarnished a few moments ago because Leo Vratker was asked in the doll yesterday if uh, the government would do anybody uh, anything to help people with their bills that's a bill that everyone gets uh, and something that people have to use uh, and you don't have any choice uh, as to what type of energy you use it's what comes in on the wires um, I'm working on that at the moment and as I say uh, if we're going to do something that makes an impact on people's bills in the new year well we'll have to make a decision on that in the next week or two but it's been worked on as I speak uh, by Ministers Tony Hugh McGrath uh, and, uh, and Minister Ryan as well And is that what's being reported in the papers this morning Minister? €100 Euro to be knocked off for the first electricity bill next year So Michael, two, two things um, First of all, I, I, and you mentioned correctly people are under serious financial pressure and financial strain from COVID and everything else but I want to reaffirm, it's not just financial pressure. People have suffered an awful lot through their health, through loss of life, their families, and just everyday life. People are under immense pressure. And 
And I think it's fair to say every it's been through a very difficult 18 months and I think the support for each other is important as well. And we can see the pressure on the health service and mental health service as well because people are under immense pressure at difficult times. So, yes, financially we can assist with that and that will, that will take some of that pressure off, some of the suffering because of COVID off as well. So two things. Yes, anybody who's out of work again, the pub payments have been restored, but also there are other supports that are entitled to through social protection. So it's important to engage through social protection, through the inter-office with community welfare officer around the additional support, including essentially the payments, and exceptionally these payments at very difficult times. You might have an energy person that you need assistance with. So you can look for that assistance for those who are very vulnerable and under an awful lot of pressure. Then in general, to try to relieve pressure on people's bills when it comes to energy, the government uh, have been looking at this for the, for the last couple of weeks and a decision will be made very soon in relation to what's the best way to help people with their domestic energy bills. Mm. Um, and, and I think that will be a, a, some sort of a direct assistance towards their bills. OK, the papers seem to be talking about electricity bills. The Times just seem to be talking about electricity and gas bills. Is it yeah. both bills that are being looked at? And, and are we talking about €100 Euro or thereabouts? Yeah, so, so, so two things. And I just want to finish the point. We're looking domestically, first of all. The Times has also been very clear in, in relation to our department because if I am based at Enterprise Trade and Climate, we work with businesses as well. We're also trying to see if there's some way we can assist with the energy costs for business too. So the supports that will be announced are across energy costs because it's not just electricity, gas has gone up as well. Um, I honestly genuinely cannot tell you if, if what this figure is. Uh, I don't believe that's been agreed yet. Uh, the Cabinet has to decide that. So reports in the papers around €100 Euro or a greater figure, uh, I can't say they're true because okay. the decision has not been made. And that's, okay. that's the truth. Can, can I ask you about a, a related subject there? Because uh, we know uh, about the increase in the cost of fuel. Uh, and Richard O'Donoghue told uh, the Dáil yesterday that farmers are going to protest in Dublin on Sunday and then the truckers will protest on Monday. Would you ask the farmers and the truckers to call those protests off, Minister? Well, there's two things. Uh, my understanding, some of those protests are, are being organised by new groups and new umbrella groups. They're not the ones that traditionally sit down and negotiate support with government. Uh, and what I would say is that the haulage groups and the farmers groups over the years that have sat down and are sitting down over the last couple of months with all the various departments uh, have made progress and have we did see the introduction of a rebate scheme for fuel a number of years ago, which is quite useful at times of high cost as well. So there have been positive changes made over the years by proper negotiation and sitting down and working this out. I've heard Pascal Donoghue... Yeah, but uh, uh, on the, the 13th of December, on the, uh, on the 12th and 13th of December, to bring the city to close, uh, to a standstill, when people are struggling to do business. I, I mean, it really is terrible timing. So, so two things there, Michael. Because I, I, again, I'm, I'm a Minister in the Department of Trade, I'm Minister for Retail, and I know the serious, serious devastation uh, that, that any shutdown in the city can bring to businesses at a very difficult time. So naturally, I wouldn't encourage that. I wouldn't like to see it happening. I'm asking uh, those people to have sensible negotiations which have delivered progress in the past. Michael McGrath, Pascal Donoghue, the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach have said on numerous occasions that we are working out solutions and assistances on this as well. And, and there is a rebate there for, from fuel goes down a certain price for those in the haulier sector. I know from talking to Peter Farley here, our local chair of the Connacht Association, they need more and they need more assistance because they don't get to qualify for all the various assistance that are to the hauliers and we want, we're working on that for them and with them and we will find the solutions. These protests are being, are being or, or, or organised by others who are not involved and they're not, they're, you know, they're, for whatever reason they, they are choosing this, this path but it hasn't worked in the past and there's no need for protests like that. You sit down and we work out some, some solutions here. 
Okay, there's a, a, an opinion poll today, Minister. Uh, it's not the real poll. That's when people go out and vote. It is just a, a snapshot in time. But the Ipsos MRBI opinion poll for the Irish Times today is very like the snapshot in time before it and the snapshot in time before that again. Not a, a very good poll for Fine Gael, uh, at 20% uh, as is Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin 15 points ahead on 35. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, Michael, two things. Uh, you and I both know polls come and go. And, but there is. But there's plenty of polls there. <laughs> there's a lot so. of snapshots, though, that I are very similar, Minister. There is. So I'm mm. not going to deny what the, polls are, what the polls are showing. But two things on that, right? We are at a very difficult time of our country. We've come through an extremely, extremely difficult time. People, People's lives have been completely disrupted. So people are hardly going to be content or happy. They recognise government are probably doing their best in most cases. Yes, there's going to be difficulty with communication and that gives uh, opposition parties a chance to jump in. But I think when people sit down and review the last year and a half and see the way government has stepped up, the three, involving the three parties, to try and guide us through COVID and guide this country back to, I would say, a jobs-led recovery, which is now happening, that puts the public finances in place to deliver all the supports that people need to get through difficult times. I look at opposition parties, and, and we can see one trading high in the polls. But I think I'd ask anybody to analyse what that opposition party are saying or doing, because every day of the week they're saying something different. It depends on who they're talking to. So it's very easy to be popular and high in the polls when you keep saying popular things and have no difficult decisions to make. So I, I think Irish people are very realistic when it comes closer to any election, okay. either in two years or three years they will review what parties are saying or doing and what they have done because okay. it's but, easy for but, it to be popular. But it'll give you and others, no doubt, uh, pause for thought uh, once again today. One thing... Uh, if I, I could, oh, Michael, Michael, sorry, I want to be clear on this now. Uh, when you're in government, you make decisions that are yeah. right for the country. Oh, no, I know. To be I know. popular and polls. I, I, I want to ask you one last question, if I can, because uh, I was listening to you talk about some of uh, the great initiatives in Cork City yesterday that has resulted in the creation of jobs and how they've revitalised the city centre and seven streets have been pedestrianised. Uh, that facilitates a thousand outdoor dining spaces. Uh, Two hundred and thirty outdoor dining grants uh, were given uh, to the city. Approval for five major winterproofing grants for outdoor dining. Uh, these were grants that the government made available. We thought it was a, a, a wonderful initiative, and, and indeed we spent a long time. Uh, promoting it uh, on the programme and hearing from local councillors and the ideas that they had uh, for bringing about change of this sort in their local town. Uh, were you disappointed, Minister, that Mead County Council didn't apply for any of that money? OK, to be clear, what I was talking about yesterday, because it doesn't get anyone, anyone wondering, I do talk about plenty of counties, but there was individual questions asked of me about Cork yeah, yesterday, yeah, so yeah, I specifically yeah. had all the Cork details with me and I was talking about that sure, as well. Sure, so, sure. So that was an implementation plan Cork had put together out of a drawn. No, I know, but but you, but you, but you made the point that they they did a great job and they're creating jobs out of it, and the city is going to be enhanced and much better for all of that yeah. work. Mead County Council didn't apply for one right. red cent. So can I can I finish, Michael? So Mead County Council, if you drive through Navan, Kells. Uh, or many other towns, you will see all the parklets uh, and all the work that's been driven there through assistance, of course, by my own council, the Emmy and Sarah and Eugene, driving the activity. Fabulous looking in our towns as well. There are a range of supports. Yesterday, Enfield has been announced uh, as a new town, as a, as a, as a, as a chosen town to develop a map. But, Minister, the, the question is about the outdoor dining scheme. Mead County Council didn't apply for any money under that scheme. Well, my understanding is the County Council have availed of all the support that were brought to Mead County Council did not spent. apply for any money under the scheme that was called the Outdoor Dining Scheme. 
Michael, I don't, I don't because yesterday I was talking about. Sure, Tom, sure, sure, sure. And I, 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 I don't mean, I, I, I don't yeah. mean to uh, ask you about something that you haven't prepared for, Minister. But maybe uh, you'd care to look at that because. Yeah, no, but, but to be clear, Michael, I don't have the, uh, have the stats in terms of what exactly they got, but I do know that Meath County Council are very proactive uh, in, in, in They got nothing, Minister. Or, or, Minister, they got nothing. They didn't apply for anything. Right, well, they've obviously, there's different schemes at different times, so I, I'll get the details on that for you as well. But what I would say is, because I've been involved in the council, and an example of a project is Flower Hill, for a long number of years now, three and a half years, Meath County Council have successfully bought into that project and helped us draw down over £10 million to, for, to, for Flower Hill as one example, and as yeah. many other organisation yeah. projects as well. So they are doing their job. Of course, I want every council to grab everything they can. And I'm delighted to see MP been picked yesterday and other supports. No, well, and what I'm talking about is the Outdoor Dining Enhanced Scheme, uh, which was a, a government initiative which made money available uh, that businesses could apply for, which would be channeled through the council. But the council could also make its own applications uh, for two sites, if I remember correctly, for in around 200,000, 400,000 in total. Uh, and Meath County Council didn't apply at all to that scheme. Right. Okay, Michael, my understanding is, I'm sorry if I'm wrong on this, I, I assume they did because I saw the, the, the projects being developed around the town like the parkets, but I will absolutely check that to be absolutely sure and come back to you with the details because I would engage with the council on nearly every scheme. That scheme wasn't operated on the right department, so I didn't track every penny of yeah, it. No, 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 no. I would definitely check it. I don't mean to be plugging that out of the sky, Minister. Uh, I apologise if that was no, the case. No, there's no problem, yeah, yeah, but, but I would make the comment without sure. I, I mean, I, I thought uh, you really had it listening to you talking about uh, how you can uh, enhance outdoor spaces and that will not just result in a better environment for the people who live there but it creates jobs and so on and it's what they do all over the world but and, it was and just Michael, an amazing thing you would have heard us talking yesterday uh, and Eve Fulham would have confirmed and the junction had her homepage and myself that Enfield was picked so what we are doing now uh, and it, 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 there's a new framework being developed for, for town centre frameworks and that will bring together all the state agencies and, and the local authorities and local town teams together under a framework, under a plan to develop a town centre first approach to all our towns, um, and that that framework document is going through cabinet very very soon. And uh, in, in, in light of that, Head Humphreys announced the first twenty five towns around the, around the county yesterday to take part of that. But uh, over time, all our towns and villages will follow will follow these plans as well. And we county council are right in the middle of that, driving that activity because we want to try to make our towns and villages and our cities more attractive places to win investment to win customers back in for, for, for retail and for hospitality and to bring activity back in at night time as well. So there's big plans here to really try to reposition our towns and villages as well. Cork is a town, I discussed, a city I discussed yesterday mm. because I've been, I've been down there twice. It suffers a lot with vacancy and dereliction. As a city council, they've put together government schemes yeah. and some of their own resources from Ray. Well, there, there's going to be massive, wonderful changes in Carlingford and in Dundalk and in towns uh, around the country as a result of uh, this scheme, but not in County Mead because the council okay. failed to make I, any application whatsoever. I, again, Michael, yeah. to be fair yeah. to me, County Council, there are a range of schemes. No, I know. Councils apply for different ones. Mm. And I, 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 I will work with them on more and more projects. Mm. I think the funding that's going to come down through the rural regeneration, the urban regeneration, the town centre force principles. There's a lot of funding available, okay. thankfully. Compared to being 10 years ago, there's now going to be a spend. You know, okay, we but it's me, County Council's yeah. loss, or yeah. the people that they serve, more to the point. Minister, I, I know you need to be elsewhere, uh, and uh, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Right, thanks, Mike. That's uh, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English, who is a Fine Gael TD for Midwest. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, the cost of uh, disability in Ireland is a survey of 4,734 people living in this country with disabilities who responded to the survey that was carried out by Indicon International on behalf of uh, the Department of Social Protection. And it seems as though it is very expensive to live in this country if you have a disability. Let's uh, talk uh, to John Dolan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Disability Federation of Ireland. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us. Nine and a half thousand euro more expensive than it is uh, for people who don't have a disability, at least between nine and a half thousand and eleven thousand seven hundred. Why is that the case? Well, if, if, if you just stop for one second and think, uh, people, and as, as the report actually said it itself, people with disabilities have a range of additional living expenses. Think simple things like fuel, food, clothing, uh, etc. Transport and mobility. Um, a lot of people, you can't just hop out and get in the bus, assuming there is a bus, etc. Uh, and then there's... Um, and a whole range of other things you can't easily do for yourself. You might have to get somebody else to do them. Uh, equipment aids, uh, medicines, care support. But just those ordinary day-to-day living expenses are higher. Now, they're not exactly the same mm. for everybody. And uh, that's why the, uh, this report was very important to actually um, focus down on the issues. And the other thing they did in the report was... Um, they, 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 they said that often people, uh, they, the, the issues in relation to access to education, housing, transport, employment and health, uh, having better access to the services provided there in other places is also an element uh, for people. But the very bottom line, and this goes back to a report that was done, the Commission on the Status of People with Disabilities in 1996 is reported, that's a quarter of a century ago, mm. and it said uh, very clearly there, and listening again to people with disabilities from all across the country, and you named another, if you like, nearly 5,000 people in your intro there, um, they, they, the cost, the ordinary everyday cost of living with a disability is heightened. Mm. significantly heightened uh, for somebody with a disability uh, regardless whether that's mental health, physical uh, neurological, sensory, whatever And it'll differ depending on the disability and other circumstances as you said and what we're talking about here are averages so some people aren't really uh, worried uh, in terms of uh, the financial cost of of it if you like uh, and others are spending or need much more uh, than that uh, 11,700. I think think like everybody everybody is pinched in terms of their pocket. There's no doubt about that. Mm, Okay. There's nobody... There, there's 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 nobody across the, the disability spectrum that doesn't have the problem with disposable income to not disposable income but enough income to deal with the things like I said mm. when, you know that menu of things food okay but ju- but but just yeah. on that point of yeah. averages uh, because uh, we were talking yeah. averages some people this report says uh, are finding uh, that they need uh, an additional sixteen thousand euro a year because of their disability but also because yeah. of things like their age the type of house they live in and yeah. uh, the severity of uh, the disability uh, on average then they're spending eighteen percent more on durable goods nine point eight percent more on energy eight 
12.8% more on food, 12.1% less on housing and 6.5% less on luxuries such as alcohol and tobacco. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it is one thing looking at this in terms of averages, uh, but when you, you look at specifics, I take it that you're also finding circumstances where people just don't have the money uh, to yeah. meet all of their needs. And, and you see, remember here, the important thing, uh, if, if you're earning a, a big salary or a decent salary and your food costs go up by 5 or 6 or 7%, you have some hedge against that. But if you're on a means-tested income, the disability allowance, mm. which is just over 200 euros a week, um, 2%, 5% is just not there. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? You're yeah. already means tested. Um, well, well, if you're living on your own on a disability allowance, I take it you're in great trouble because 203 euro a week, which is... Uh, yeah, it's gone allowance. up a little bit now in the budget, yeah. That's yeah. that's 10,500 euro a year. Yeah. Uh, and if you need to come up with an additional 9,500 to 11,700 euro a year, uh, you're damned before you start sort of thing. Yes. And the other thing to remember is this is going on. This is an unresolved. I've, I've, I've gone back a quarter of a century, right? Mm. So when we first identified, this was identified and accepted by the government as an issue. Okay. So it, it didn't start the year before. It's always been there. And the more, uh, the more and more people are um, living in the community, the bigger that issue becomes. And that's the, 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 the basic standard for everyone is that they can live with dignity in their local community. And these, there are thousands of people living in, in the community that your radio L, uh, yeah. LMFM mm-hmm. serves. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, what's uh, the, it's, not, what? it's not just an odd person here and there. What's the what, what's the solution? Do you think uh, the five thousand people or thereabouts uh, who were surveyed were asked uh, what would help with the cost of, of living, uh, extra income, extra grants, and better services were some of uh, the responses. What yeah, do you think uh, would help most? Uh, yeah, that, that is that that is what's needed, and both Disability Federation of Ireland and, and a number of other leading organisations across the disability movement uh, in the past couple of years have have been jointly saying a good start would be to push 20 euros into people's pockets extra on a weekly basis. To simply, uh, there's, uh, we're saying that on the basis, there's nobody who doesn't have uh, an extra cost below that amount. Um, and uh, they, they, so I really, they, this report now, thankfully, and we had pressed and others had pressed for it to be published. It was, it, 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 it was announced uh, in late 2018 that it was being done. Um, it's behind schedule coming out, but thankfully now it's out. And I think what's important now is that we see some movement uh, in euros and cents and resources in the next budget. And to go exactly into the areas uh, you, you, you said, um, some extra income for people and to see a continuation of improvements in the level of services and supports across those um, um, transport, housing, education, health, employment. And remember, mm. if we can get more people who want to be employed into employment, mm. that, 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 is, that, that, that in itself, um, it's not the, it, it, it doesn't do away with the problem because even if you're in, in employment, you still have 
uh, extra living costs. They don't go away because you're working. Um, and, and in fact, you have extra costs in terms of getting to getting to um, getting to work, etc., okay. etc. Okay. So I think that's that's really it. Yeah, all um, right. Some extra money in people's pockets, commencing with the next budget that's in October, uh, and moving across uh, a number of those um, particular areas, like like mm-hmm. housing, transport, okay. employment, etc. Okay, John, uh, it certainly makes uh, for disturbing reading, uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It's not Christmas reading, but uh, it's great to have it, and I hope we can get stuck into it next year. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. John Dolan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Disability Federation of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've had a, a couple of calls today. Thanks to Catherine, who has been on the phone to us, and she says uh, that uh, the government rolled out uh, the vaccines very well to begin with, but when it comes to the boosters, it seems very disorganised and nobody knows what's happening. The queues yesterday in Dublin will put people off from getting or going to get their vaccine, their booster vaccine. Thanks indeed uh, for that, Catherine. You may be right. Maybe they'll have it sorted out by today. I think it was recognised that uh, it could have been a lot better and hopefully uh, the problem will be fixed up and hopefully uh, people will go and get their booster and we'll all be safer. Thank you though for the call as I say. Great to be hearing from people. If you are going to get in touch with us today uh, maybe you'd like to tell us what you think about these protests that are, are planned on Sunday and Monday which will bring Dublin to a standstill. Thomas, I'm putting it on the record of the doll today that I was contacted in my office last week by the individual farmers group and the Irish truck and hauliers, SMEs, taxi drivers, uh, frontline workers over the fuel increase, which your government has a failure to tackle. And this is only on the fuel increase since 2020 that you have taxed every person in Ireland. You have taxed them uh, 10 euros and 88 cents on every 100 euros extra in tax. This is only on the increase in fuel. These groups have come to me and told me they're going protesting. Uh, the farmers group are coming on Sunday and the Irish truck and haulers are coming on Monday. Now, I think everybody is fed up with the price of fuel, petrol and diesel. It's through the roof uh, and we're all paying it. Uh, but do you support the action that will be taken, which will bring the city to a standstill once again? There'll be all sorts of problems, whether people are trying to get to hospital appointments or traders are, are trying to do a bit of business before the Christmas period. Uh, do you support it uh, because the price of petrol and diesel is so expensive uh, or do you oppose it? Uh, maybe you'd let us know today. We would be interested to hear from you because I think we'll be talking about these protests, if they're anything like the last one, uh, over the course of uh, the next few days. Sean has been in touch with us and Sean says his cousin has a, a disability and his heating costs are huge because he's in a wheelchair and he feels the cold. I'm sure that's because uh, he's in the chair and he's not moving around the way you would otherwise. Uh, he says he gets his disability allowance but lives on his own so it really isn't a lot. Thanks uh, Sean for sharing that with us. Uh, good to be getting calls today and thank you to anybody who's been in touch with us so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. They really are very clever in New Zealand, aren't they? They've come up with this great plan to ban smoking altogether. And it starts this year, it'll go on for many years, but it starts with children under the age of 14 who are banned from buying cigarettes 
Uh, the thing is that it's a lifetime ban. They'll never be allowed to purchase cigarettes. So it's children under the age of 14 this year, next year 15, the year after 16, and so on, until eventually it won't be possible for anybody to buy cigarettes. We know the majority of smokers want to quit, but they can struggle to do so on their own. This plan builds on the good work of quit programmes by drastically reducing the availability of cigarettes, by making them less addictive, and by introducing a smoke-free generation, which will mean that no one aged older than 14 at the time the planned legislation comes into force will ever be able to legally purchase cigarettes. These are world-leading measures which will put us on track to achieve New Zealand's long-standing goal of being smoke-free by 2025. Studies have shown that dramatically reducing nicotine levels in cigarettes makes it far easier for people to quit. So the action plan will see New Zealand transition to low nicotine cigarettes. This is a major change, but it is based on clinical research. And it is realistic because with vapes widely available, there is a far less harmful option available for smokers who are addicted to nicotine. All right, uh, that's uh, the Health Minister in New Zealand, Aisha Verrill. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, to John Dolan, or beg your pardon, John Mallon, who's spokesperson for Forest Ireland. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You struggled for years to get off uh, the cigarettes. I'm sure uh, you must be applauding those in New Zealand who have come up with this innovative plan to make sure that there are children who are alive today who will never be able to buy cigarettes. Well, it's not they'll never be able to buy cigarettes. They'll never be able to buy them legally. Uh, I know, um, I, I listened to, to, uh, to uh, Alicia Varal uh, talking about it. Now, she said, when, when she was put under pressure, she said, well, this was just about starting a discussion on how to stop people from, from beginning to smoke. That's the reality of it. They're talking about uh, debating a law next year, and if successful, bring it in the year after. But I, I don't know, Michael, it, 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 it's, it's creeping prohibition to start with, and that has to be wrong. Uh, it's wrong-headed, it, it's the wrong way to go about things. Uh, certainly, the, a government has every right to try to discourage people from smoking, and the best way of doing mm-hmm. that, and Forrest has been saying this for 10 years, is education. And the same with alcohol. It, you know, and, and 14-year-olds, you tell a 14-year-old not to do something, you're almost guaranteed they'll do it. And if you tell them uh, it's very dangerous and it's against the law, they're even more likely. That's an awful thing to say about young people. I think young people are... (laughs) We're talking about 14-year-olds. I'm not talking about responsible adults here. You wouldn't expect them to be smoking anyway, let alone uh, to be buying them uh, illegally. Well, no, but I, I have I have actually uh, heard several people on from from the anti-smoking side of the house, and they are constantly telling you that fourteen-year-olds have access to tobacco and they're smoking it. And this is why this is being brought in. Um, if you had Alcohol Action Ireland on this morning, they'd be telling you that that fourteen-year-olds are drinking, and the anti-drug people will be telling you that they're taking drugs, marijuana and cocaine and uh, these tablets, whatever they're they're, they're taking at these rave parties. This is it's what's going on in reality. But the way to deal with that, I mean, introducing a law that 14-year-olds can't go into a shop, the, the, their former Labour uh, leader, uh, Bill Shorten, down in New Zealand, mm. he said that that's a major problem with this. He expressed grave doubts about it yeah. because he said the country's awash with illegal tobacco. Yeah, he's probably a smoker. I wouldn't be listening to him. Um, <laughs> no, he actually isn't a smoker. I probably and, uh, is. He's Sorry, maybe, anti-smoke maybe, himself. Uh, Both his parents died yeah. young from cigarettes. Yeah. 
But he, he expressed doubt because he said that basically what you're saying, you're, you're taking the business away, which the shopkeepers are kicking up a ferocious racket down there. About oh, it. don't mind them either. I mean, this is a public health measure. Apart from cancer and all of that, why would anybody want to be inhaling rat poison and all of the other things that goes into it, rocket fuel or whatever else goes into cigarettes and all of that sort of thing? So the really good thing, apart from anything else, apart from it being illegal to buy cigarettes for all of your life, uh, is that they're going to start a conversation and these youngsters, these impressionable youngsters are going to be asked, well, why can't I smoke if older people can smoke? And then they're going to be told, that's because they've got a terrible, terrible addiction. Uh, And it wouldn't be fair to ask them to give up because it's impossible to give up once you get hooked on these horrible things. Well, look, Michael, you're going to have a situation very quickly if this were to become law down there where it'll be legal for a 25-year-old to buy tobacco. Because they've got a drug habit. Because they've got a drug habit. (laughs) Drug habits, I tell you, there's lots of people with drug habits around the country. There's lots of people with pharmaceutical drug habits, with recreational drug habits. And and remember, we're talking about, in the case of tobacco, tobacco is illegal. This is a drug habit that you're so addicted to something that's going to kill you. Uh, I mean, they're just dreadful things. So wouldn't that be a great conversation to have with young people when they're saying, why can the 25-year-old smoke and I can't? Because they're a drug addict. They're, dr- they're, they're addicted to a, a carcinogenic thing that they just keep lighting up and puffing it away uh, and they'd be able to buy a house or two if they weren't spending all of their money on it. <laughs> I'd still people smoke, Michael, because they do so from choice. No, because they they're addicted. Because they're I, addicted. I, actually, I smoked for 49 years. Yeah. And I loved it. I really loved it. I missed them like mad. I gave them up, missed them like mad. I went on the vape, and the vapes got me off them. And I noticed in, uh, I don't know if you picked up on that, uh, in 2017, New Zealand uh, made va- uh, vaping uh, very much uh, centre of their, their anti-smoking mm, policy. Mm, mm, mm. So they're recommending vaping. I, I think they've got... Yeah, they're going to bring the vape. nicotine down in the cigarettes uh, and recommend people vape uh, if they want that extra dose of nicotine because of but, their addiction. But, but, but do, you, do you know anything get, 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 They're saying get the nicotine if you, if you have this problem, if you're addicted to the stuff and you can't get off it. You, you, you know you, use, use the vapes instead of the cigarettes because the cigarettes will kill you. Michael, do you know anything about nicotine? Oh, yeah. Nicotine is a naturally occurring uh, product in, in a plant. Um, it, it's, people, it's, in highly addictive. Plant. it's a highly addictive naturally occurring thing in a plant. Except it's a completely harmless. Nicotine? Nicotine, totally harmless. But no, Nicotine. it's not totally harmless because it's an addictive substance. And because... You're addicted to the nicotine, you're, you're smoking cigarettes. And that's the point. I, I, I know where you're going, John, but that's the point that the New Zealands are saying. If you need that uh, addiction fed by the nicotine, get it from the vape so you're not smoking the cigarettes because it's exactly, the tobacco exactly. that's harmful. Exactly. And that's, but you see, nicotine itself is absolutely harmless. And the head of Ash UK... Ash it's, is the it's, most it's, not, it's not harmless because you, you have an addiction to it. You have an it's addiction not, to it. Yeah, listen... I know fellas with an addiction to golf. I know people with an addiction to food. I know people who started an antidepressant. Well, none of them are none, 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 none of them are good things. Addiction is not a good thing. Addiction is 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 an over compulsive behaviour, perhaps. But the head of Ash UK has actually equated nicotine with caffeine. He said it's the same thing and the same effect. You get a little high from it. Uh, he said there are a lot of people. Have I think it's, have their I think it's far more addictive than caffeine. Uh, it no, will, no, 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 it, no. Nicotine will not. 
cause you uh, problems physically, but the addiction is a bad thing because you have lost control. You have to do something. That is not a good thing, no matter what it is that you're addicted to. No, you, you haven't lost control. <laughs> Where are you going with that? Because you have to feed the addiction. You have to get the nicotine or else you get withdrawal symptoms. No, you don't. Mike, you don't get withdrawal symptoms. Of course, you get withdrawal symptoms. Listen, I, I, I gave up. I gave up smoking. I don't believe you ever smoked. If you're saying you didn't get withdrawal symptoms when you didn't smoke, I, I didn't. That was the funny thing. Well, then you're you're I mean, you're no, one no, in a million. Hang on. I went on the vaping. Ah, it yeah, that's was, different. It, it wasn't the, the vaping wasn't the same thing. It was like Ribena versus no, wine. I know, but you were getting the nicotine. But I was getting the nicotine. Yeah. And so, then once I no longer wanted to smoke. No. Uh, I, was, I gave up the vaping in no time. That was no problem. Okay. Question of a couple of days. You see, any any smoker, any smoker who goes cold turkey, uh, or any vapor who goes cold turkey, will get withdrawal symptoms because it is an addictive substance. And like any addiction, you need to feed the addiction. That's why addiction is not a good thing, John. <laughs> addiction is not the major problem. I mean, the compulsive behaviour habit is, is also addiction. Uh, addiction like, are you telling me that people who can't feed themselves and are going out buying cigarettes because they have to feed their habit uh, that, that's not the problem no but cigarettes cigarettes are a problem because you light them you actually change the chemical composition no because you're because you're addicted to them because you want to smoke I did I wanted to smoke for years uh, no very often I couldn't did, for ages did you like your uh, first cigarette one point for did you like your first months. cigarette but I actually, I, I enjoyed them. Did you like your first cigarette? Uh, the first one? No, I didn't. Not no, the second no because, you were, because you were putting poison into your body and your body rejected it. But as a, as a young child, I gather, you foolishly thought, I want to be a big fella and smoke. So you went and had another one until you, no, got, no, a, 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 until you got over this physical thing of your body rejecting, putting poison into it. Uh, no, Michael, that isn't the case. What actually happened, and it's happened with everybody, it was peer pressure. I was offered a cigarette by an older guy. Okay. I had, I, no, so wait, I wasn't educated. I had no argument against taking it. Uh, it was the big man thing to do. Yeah. And I, I persisted with it. Yeah. Now, you persisted. You kept doing it until your body could absorb the poison. <laughs> if you wish. Yep, uh, that's I do. That's the same with alcohol, incidentally. Alcohol Probably, is, yep. is, is a poison. But... I, but in the event, I, I've argued and constantly argued, and I've argued this on your show many times in the past, education is the answer, not banning. Mm, well, there'll be, there'll be great education for children in New Zealand now when they're told, why can he buy cigarettes and I can't? Uh, well, because they're drug addicts. Wouldn't it be much better to equip a child with a good reason if they're offered a cigarette, a good reason not to? Wouldn't it be good? Yeah, well, I think that's a good reason. I don't want. I, to I, I don't want to end up like your man there, who's spending the price of a, a small mortgage uh, on feeding his habit every day. A fourteen-year-old doesn't go to think like that, Michael. Oh, I think they would. Don't I, I, you really don't have enough respect for fourteen-year-olds. They don't even know what a mortgage is. <laughs> fourteen, and they shouldn't. I do. think you underestimate them, John. I don't think so. You know, you asked me about this law. I think it's it's unnecessary. I think there's much wiser wiser things they could do. And I think it will make the the smuggling problem worse. It'll it'll, it'll increase the amount of the illicit trade. Uh, And this country, there isn't a a crossroads in this country you couldn't get 200 cigarettes at. And they're half price. Okay, John, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. John Mallon is spokesperson for Forest Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Minister, as you will know, Drogheda is Ireland's largest town and the population of the borough itself 
is almost 50,000. Uh, the very immediate hinterland uh, of the town brings the population of the area uh, in excess of 80,000. Uh, now, the government and the HSE wouldn't dream of leaving Waterford City or Galway City without a COVID-19 testing centre, yet Drogheda is left without one. And it seems that nobody is accountable. Now, Minister, as you will know, uh, I am from Drogheda. Uh, I live there. Uh, I love my town. I care deeply uh, about it. And I'm not making a narrow, local, parochial case for Drogheda to have a permanent COVID-19 testing centre or a community vaccination centre. I'm making a rational, logical case based on the evidence before us and based on our experience. Uh, the Drogheda local electoral areas and the Leytown Bettystown local electoral area, which uh, adjoins it, consistently feature at the top of the charts in terms of the areas most adversely affected by COVID-19. Yet we still have no vaccination centre. There is no logic to that. Right, that's Jed Nash speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. But what would the minister make of that point? A town that size, yes, uh, um, that is so far, uh, to me, it makes sense. And, and I agree with what you're saying. And I will bring back um, uh, your concerns um, to uh, the, 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 the HSE uh, and see it. But, but, but. But well, hold on, sorry. did you say you agreed to the minister, uh, say he agreed with Jed Nash? Uh, but uh, as I said, uh, uh, there's a case of Drogheda being the largest town with 50,000 population. Um, there, there is, a, to me, there's a case um, uh, uh, for a, a testing centre within in walking distance of that 50,000 50, people. That's my opinion, um, but I'll bring that opinion to uh, the HSC. And, uh, thank you. That's Minister of State Frankie Fien responding uh, to Labour Party TD for Louth and East Meath and Jed Nash in the Dáil yesterday who joins us now. A very good morning to you Jed Nash. Thanks for the time uh, that you're spending with us uh, today. Uh, Was that the response that you were expecting? Um, Sometimes, um, particularly in this government and I found it with the last one as well in this era of new politics, uh, you find that government TDs and um, government ministers agree with you on the floor of the doll, uh, but that sometimes means very little uh, because in reality uh, nothing uh, ends up uh, being done. Sometimes I wonder about government TDs and even ministers of state and sometimes senior government ministers whether they're in government at all or not. Um, I've no doubt that the minister based on the objective facts that I presented to him yesterday would agree that Drogheda uh, needs a COVID-19 testing centre and a vaccination centre given the scale of the town, given its size, given its prominence, its importance. Uh, to the region and given as well the fact that, uh, as I've said repeatedly on the programme and in the Dáil three times in the last three weeks, that Drogheda and Eastmead have been the areas most adversely affected by COVID uh, quite consistently uh, over the last uh, almost two years now. Uh, I've no doubt the Minister agrees with me at a personal level whether he will act is another story. Mm, well, he, he said it twice very clearly that he, he did agree with you and he went further than that uh, because uh, I suppose I wonder if it's the government's decision to make because the minister said that he'd take this to the HSE uh, and he'd make the case on your behalf. The, the, this is the point and I, I've no doubt that, that he will um, and if, uh, if we're to take government seriously and if we're to take the doll seriously uh, I would expect that the minister would make good uh, on his commitment. You can't simply put that on the record of the doll uh, and uh, not do anything um, 
practical about it. Uh, I've no doubt that him and his officials may raise this with the HSE again at a national level. Uh, whether that does the trick or not is another story. I know, for example, Michael, that there are staff in the region here, HSE staff, who are pressing the HSE nationally uh, to do better uh, by Drogheda uh, to ensure that we do have the testing centre that we need and the vaccination centre. The vaccination centre issue is becoming much more important, Michael. Over the last few days, we've been contacted by a considerable number of people in the 50 to 59 age cohort. As we know, we struggle hard to persuade the HSE to make sure that those who were being left behind last April and May remember that those in the 50 to 59 age cohort uh, in this area, in Louth and in East Mead, were among the last to be uh, vaccinated uh, in the state. And I had to work extremely closely with HSE officials regionally who did address the issue ultimately by ensuring that the Helix was available uh, uh, for for the uh, administering of vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And we know that the efficacy of that vaccine, but the vaccination uh, is uh, not uh, as um, high as Pfizer, for example. Uh, and there's a real acute importance now to make sure that those shots get the vaccination boosters get into the arms of the 50 to 59 cohort. And there's quite a concentration of them in Louth and in the Drada area. Uh, and the point that I made to the minister again yesterday was that not only do we need a, a testing centre, given the evidential uh, facts that I provided to him yesterday, but we also need uh, a community vaccination centre because, you know, access is key here, Michael. Access is key. And there is a, a correlation, uh, whether it's causal or not, uh, but there is a correlation between what happened last April and what has happened subsequently in uh, the Drogheda area because Drogheda became the COVID hotspot and that cohort were left behind, as you say. Something went wrong in the system and I suppose things go wrong, but the solution was to bus everybody down to the helix between 50 and 60 and administer administer them with that one-shot vaccine. Pfizer uh, seems to have efficacy for six months, Janssen two months, maybe three months if you're lucky. Uh, and perhaps uh, it was the cause of that huge spike that was seen in the area. And there is concern, I think, about people who had that one shot of Janssen, particularly then, let's say, if they had it in April uh, by the end of June, maybe they were as good as not vaccinated. I'm going to uh, play a little bit of what Colm Henry had to say about uh, people who were in that situation yesterday. The NIAC advice reflects the, the more rapid waning antibody immunity um immunity antibody waning in, in the Anson category so that um, in the 50s plus the booster was given is, is authorised to be given at an earlier interval of three months compared to the five months for others and in when we go below the 50s age group uh, those who receive the Anson are afforded the same risk as those being 30 and 39 so so there is some reflection in the, in the relative risk profile of the Anson recipients in terms of lifting them up in the below 50s to a to a higher age that, than they would have if they were waiting if they were categorized based on age alone so uh, so that's reflected in our advice and we we we'll be trying to translate that into our in the way we work and how do you think it should be translated jed nash well the way it needs to be translated is by not doing what happened last april and may in this area in particular and leaving them behind uh, there's a real uh, case uh, now a really really important case to be made for uh, expediting uh, 
the um, vaccination booster for the 50 to 59 age group. I mean, yesterday I was contacted by quite a number of people who were wondering if, for example, the Fairway Centre in uh, Dundalk uh, was open uh, in terms of a walk-in centre for the 50 to 59 age group. And I checked and it turned out that it was open today, yes, but for the 60 to 69 age group uh, and to healthcare workers uh, and the nearest available walk-in vaccination centre for the 50 to 59s uh, was in swords. And again, if you don't have transport and you find it difficult to manage uh, or get some time off work and so on, that then causes uh, a problem. So but even uh, for can. the 60 to 69 age group, uh, it's only open this morning, uh, right. I think. Uh, uh, and then it's the healthcare workers in the afternoon. So that's not going to suit a lot right. of people. That's right. And I, I made the point in the doll yesterday in my extensive contribution. I understand, obviously, you couldn't play the entire um, 12 minutes that you know, we've a, there's a particular onus and obligation on the system now, given the way the 50 to 59 cohort was treated, not just the fact that they had to wait, uh, but that the vast majority of them received a vaccine that has proven to be not as efficacious as others, uh, that this needs to be really prioritised. And I want to see all of those who require that job get it before Christmas uh, and get it in, in our own locality. Now, I understand that people for a vaccine in particular may need to travel. And many, in many ways, this is what we might describe it as a first world problem. Uh, and we see the problem right across the world in terms of uh, you know, lack of access to vaccines. And that's a real, real problem. But we have the supply here. This is the point. And that's why um, you know, booster vaccination staff, that the complement needs to be increased. There needs to be, I think, a, a, a real focus now in the HSE in recruiting vaccinators uh, and making sure that those who, who are enabled to do it, those who are licensed to do it, uh, get on the job and do this and get the shots into the arms of the 50 to 59s before Christmas. You were also making the point that travel is a problem for uh, a lot of people in the Dáil yesterday, uh, whether it's to get vaccinated or indeed to get tested, because 20% of the people in the Drogheda area, I think you said, don't have a car. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, the CSO data from the last census indicates that 21% of, of the entire population of Drada Town, so you could be talking about 2,500 to 3,000 people, households, in fact, uh, don't actually have access to a car. And, and I'm dealing all of the time, Michael, as a local TD, and my office here is dealing with uh, queries from people who aren't able to get uh, to RD. I know that the government would say it is 25, 30 minutes away uh, by car. That's by car. Uh, and there is, of course, access via public transport. But the people I speak to, uh, they're good, honourable citizens. They don't want to run the risk if they have symptoms of infecting somebody uh, by taking a bus. Um, that's a concern that they would have. Uh, I'll give you another example. I mean, mm. dealing just uh, over the last couple of days uh, with uh, somebody in the community who's parenting uh, alone. Uh, she rents a home. Uh, her heating uh, is, isn't working. Um, she doesn't have transport to get to RD. The plumber won't come to fix her heating. Um, because uh, obviously he does not want to put himself at risk because this woman uh, has symptoms. Uh, yes, I'm sure she would be able to get a test uh, in, in RD. In fact, that has happened over the last couple of days. But it was a struggle. Um, so there's a, a knock-on consequence. It's very destructive for people's lives. People don't either want to be contacting their GP, who will then in turn contact the National Ambulance Service, a service that is doing incredible work at the moment and, very stretched and, and is very stretched, um, You know where you know patient transport vehicles with a an EMT arrives at your door uh, to um, test you for COVID-19 when that, that service is really stretched. People don't want to have to rely on the National Ambulance Service to do that. Uh, and we know that all of the countries that perform best in terms of dealing with COVID-19 uh, are the ones that um, are the ones that have you know, state-of-the-art contact tracing systems uh, backed up by um, 
community testing centres where they're needed, when they're needed. Access is key. Now, we do know that you know, we've done about a quarter of a million tests uh, at, at this present moment in time. And HSC staff in the region have done incredible work. Like the, the figures for Loud are extraordinary, mm-hmm. about 13,000 tests in the month of November. Uh, and this is no reflection uh, of, um, this is not a criticism of HSC regional mm-hmm. staff. This is a critique of the way in which straw was left behind for the get go, because we wouldn't be having this conversation, Michael, yeah. if the HSC had decided uh, uh, in, in uh, March, April uh, 2020. Uh, when the virus really first uh, hit the shores here became became such a dominant issue to actually locate a centre here in the first place. Well, as you say, it's a first world problem. So it's a good problem to be giving out about it, if you like, when you consider that some uh, countries have less than 7%, 3%, I think, in some corners of the world yeah. uh, just uh, vaccinated. But it is a problem nonetheless. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us and speaking to us about it this morning. Jed Nash, Labour Party TD for Loud and East Mead. Mick and Fingal on the phone to us to congratulate John Dolan for coming on the programme today to outline the financial problems being experienced by people who have a disability and the lack of funding available. There's a lot of people who overspend on alcohol or cigarettes or holidays or gambling and so on. And then you have people with disabilities who have such a tough time of it. Very sad to listen to, said Mick uh, when he called us. And thanks uh, for that, Mick. I imagine there's a, a few people uh, who will uh, appreciate that call. Mary has been in touch with us about these protests uh, that are being planned for Sunday and for Monday. The farmers are going to protest in Dublin on Sunday and the truckers will protest on Sunday. And Mary says she totally agrees with the protests that are planned. We are a nation that is doing everything we are told. They promised healthcare workers extra money, that they'd give them a bank holiday, and they can't even take their holidays. Never mind an extra bank holiday. Somebody has to stand up to them, says Mary. Thank you indeed uh, for making contact with us uh, today. Indeed, thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Slavery or human trafficking, as it's called these days, is, I don't know, beyond words. Uh, people who are trafficked into this country have minimal supports available to them. In addition to that, there's uh, limited access uh, to appropriate housing, childcare supports, legal advice, counselling or education, all of which essentially serve to disempower a victim of trafficking and severely inhibit their overall recovery and reintegration into society. This is according to a European-funded report, an EU-funded report called TRIPS, the Identification of Trafficked International Protection Beneficiaries Special Needs Project. Uh, the research was done by the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Its CEO is Brian Cloran, who's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Brian, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's a, a dreadful thing, uh, beyond words, as I say, to think of uh, somebody being trafficked into a country. It is essentially modern-day slavery, isn't it? It is, Michael, and good morning. Yes, it's um, a trade that is worth internationally at a global level about $150 billion um, to traffickers every year. It's it's up there with the international drug trade in terms of profitability. And it is essentially, you know, uh, profiting on people's desperation. It's 
people being taken advantage of by largely criminal gangs um, and placed into various industries so that they can be exploited and profit can be extracted from them. Um, the most prevalent form globally and in Ireland is is trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation, which is the area of work that we as an organisation do the most work in. Um, mm. This year we're currently representing 28 victims of trafficking through our independent law centre, um, which like over 40 different legal issues that they have. Okay, uh, 38 uh, were identified last year and 26 of those had been put to work in the sex industry. Yes, of the 38 victims last year, 33 were were women. Um, So a very highly gendered crime. And again, that's reflected internationally as well. It tends to be much more prevalent. About 70% women and children essentially trafficked. Um, uh, Women and children uh, usually trafficked as well into the the sex industry. Um, And as you said, in Ireland in in, in 2020, 38 victims of trafficking identified, uh, 26 of whom were were in, in the sex industry. Um, so it is um, highly exploitative, it is highly profitable, right. and it is highly damaging for the, for the people that go through it. As I say, the legal cases that we represent can go on for years. The recovery period is, is massive, and it's mainly underpinned by huge levels of trauma and PTSD, um, because there's huge violence and threats and intimidation used to con- control the women in these circumstances. Mm. Um, and that's a tactic, obviously, of the traffickers to keep them away from any support services or keep them away from any any you know police intervention or anything like that. Okay, so, but it's not just women in prostitution who have been trafficked into this country. I mean, quite often we'd hear of people working in grow houses, uh, cultivating cannabis and things like that uh, who've been trafficked into the country. Uh, But uh, it could be somebody who's doing your nails for you or washing your car or taking care of your children, as you highlight in your report. Well, that is that is that is the case. It, it's um, it crosses into labour exploitation and it crosses into things like domestic servitude as well, and even things like forced begging. Like so, so somebody trafficked for the purpose of being put on out on the street to beg um, for, for for money. Um, it's interesting. Yesterday, the Guardian released some some more recent information about their about their current investigations. So they've identified 28 victims this year um, through the formal process, but they have about 100 investigations going on. And they referenced yesterday everything you're saying. They referenced nail bars, they referenced uh, massage parlours, they referenced car washes even, um, that people are trafficked for those purposes. And there's also a big question about fisheries in Ireland as well, whether or not um, trafficking, labour exploitation is taking place in, in the the fisheries industry. There's some suggestion mm-hmm. of that and the Migrant Rights Centre and other organisations that we work with are, are doing some work in that area to try and get that clarified. Um, so it is essentially, you know, it, it's a business model. So business models go where, where the profit is to be made. It can be grow houses, it can be agriculture. Um, we've, we've uh, as I say, largely focused on the area of sexual exploitation, but some of the cases that we have were grow houses, some of the cases that we have involve fisheries and also um, domestic servitude as well. Um, so so it's a horrific area um, and one that I think is a country, basically, like we were saying yesterday, we really have to improve our game on. You know, there's been, there's been improvements um, to the state response, but at the same time, victims are left languishing in direct provision for, for several years. In some cases, direct provision is not the place at all for people, but never mind for a victim of trafficking who's trying to recover from essentially sexual mm-hmm. trauma. Um, in a room with four strangers, you know. Yeah, make this a, a bit easier for us to understand uh, 
if someone goes in to get their nails done today uh, and the person who's doing the nails is a, a victim of trafficking, uh, how does that make sense? Uh, because people will be saying, look, you know, uh, nice girl or whatever the case is, uh, seemed happy, doesn't have a ball and chain on them. Uh, how are they doing this against their will or what's going on there? Can you make sense of it for us, Brian? Well, in some ways, the, the, the chains are invisible, essentially. So what usually will happen in these circumstances is, is somebody is approached in, in their home country, and it's most often by somebody that they know, a family member sometimes, an uncle or a cousin, um, who says, I have an opportunity. There's an, an opportunity for you to go to Ireland. You know, you can go on a student visa, you can study and improve your English, you can work part-time, it'll be great. It's a great opportunity. Come on and do it. And they go, OK, that sounds brilliant. Great, let's do that. Um, and they go and do it. And, you know, they enter the country usually 99% of the time through legal channels. They come through like a student visa or something like that. But when they get here, then they find out the situation is much different than they were presented with. They're told that by those that organized this travel for them, that they now owe a debt. That debt could be 5,000 euros, it could be 10,000 euros, it could be 15,000 euros. And they're told that you will now have to pay back that debt to us. And sometimes it's by taking 50% of their earnings. Sometimes it's by taking all of their earnings. Um, and essentially what this is where the threats and intimidation and coercion come in then. So they will tr- threaten them with violence. They'll threaten the family members back home. They will go as far as saying, you know, we know where your kids are. We know where your kids are staying with your aunt and, and we know where they are. We know where to go to school every day. We will target your kids if you don't pay back this debt to us. So a lot of the time, as I say, the chains are invisible. It's threats of violence, it's coercion, and it's financial um, financial control. And, and they could be ending themselves. up in, scram- in cramped conditions, living in squalor, uh, with nothing more than uh, some basic meals, that type of thing, uh, which is a complete denial of, of all of their rights, and they're not living and they are slaves as a result. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, we, we find that mo- most people don't, wouldn't even they don't present at services and say hi i think i'm a victim of human trafficking they actually you know often don't realize themselves that what the situation they've gone through constitutes an international yeah. crime it constitutes trafficking they just say i'm in a really difficult circumstance here and i owe these guys money um but as you say it can be living in, in horrendous conditions and, and the cases that we support on the labor of the sexual exploitation side of things are you know things we routinely see which will maybe shock some of your listeners are you know, essentially denial of liberty, being locked mm. in an apartment in the IFSC and being forced to have uh, sex with, you know, 12 different men during mm. the day uh, as part of the sex industry. We had a case a number of years ago where a woman had been moved around a number of times between different countries and, and within Ireland and she escaped the situation she was in down in Waterford, made it to a Garda station and didn't even know which country she was in. She oh, didn't even know she was in Ireland, had no idea where she was, essentially. My God. Um, yeah. So it is the worst of the worst. That know, really is unbelievable. And that's the higher end of the scale and probably easier to identify somebody in that situation if you come across them. Less easy to identify people in other situations, uh, whether they're working in factories or washing your car or whatever it is. Uh, and yeah. you've uh, recommended that that system for identifying victims of trafficking would be reformed and that when they're identified that better supports would be put in place for them. Absolutely. Well, one of, one of the issues under consideration by the government at the moment is reforming the identification process because some of the cases that we that we 
go through, it's not about establishing the identity of the person, it's establishing that they are a victim of trafficking. And at the moment, that has to go through numerous different bureaucratic loops to get to get actually done. And, and the importance of it getting done is that when, when they get done, they can access some basic rights and entitlements. In some cases, they can get a temporary immigration permission. In some cases, they can begin to go on and, and you know, get some temporary social welfare support and maybe go and try and get employment, try and get, you know, get their lives back on track, essentially. But at the moment, it can take, sometimes it's quick, but, but some of the cases we see take up to two years for the person to go through that loop. And in that time, they're sitting in direct provision doing nothing, and they're not recovering. They're not getting anywhere towards any type of recovery for their situation. Um, so we know that the, the government have prioritised um, changing the identification process to make it quicker. But what we're, we're highlighting in the report as well yesterday then is we need to build a structure then to help that person get back to a life of dignity essentially. So there's a very fragmented approach to them being able to get education. They don't, they're not, they don't qualify for CZ grants in the mm-hmm. most, case, most cases to get into employment. They'll, they'll need a lot of support to get their lives back on track because of the ordeal that they've gone through sometimes for months and sometimes for years prior to prior to them being detected um so it's going in the right direction but it's, it's grindingly slowly going in the right direction and while all this is going on um victims as i say are, are sitting in direct provision you know trying to get some semblance of humanity back mm, okay interesting to see that recommendation uh, today as well that employers would consider uh taking on people from direct provision yeah, well, that's one of the improvements that the last couple of years has been, the, the, you know, it's, it's a basic thing for the majority of people, but the, the, the ability to work for, for people in the international protection system. So that was introduced over the last couple of years and, and it's gradually being taken up by people within that system. But they do face a huge amount of barriers to being able to do so. You know, for example, you can't get a driving license if, mm. if you're an, an asylum seeker. So if you're in a remote centre in the middle of nowhere in the countryside, how do you get to your job if there's no public transport? There's issues around bank accounts as well. But there's also issues around employers not knowing in a lot of cases even that people in that system can work or them facing discrimination and getting into employment because somebody says, oh, I don't really want to hire an asylum seeker, you know. Mm. So, so from IREC today, a huge encouragement, which we would all echo to employers out there to give somebody a chance. All they want to do is contribute and, and get their skills back and be able to contribute to their community around them. And maybe they'll get better opportunity to get a, a job if they regularise their status. And uh, this uh, move to do that, uh, do you think that that might have a, an impact on people who are living here and had been trafficked here because quite often people are afraid to come forward in case uh, they'd be deported uh, do you think that will have a positive impact in that sense I do so the regularization scheme that was announced last Friday by the minister is is, is a brilliant introduction and it's something that campaigners have been calling for for you know many many years um, so to see it come in is fantastic and to see it come in in, in a very generous manner, it's fantastic as well because it, it applies to people who are undocumented in the state, but also people who are stuck in the international protection system for over two years, they can apply as well, which is a very good addition to it to get people going, basically, get them into employment, get you know give them some opportunity to break the deadlock that they're in. And for those that are out there then who are maybe under the radar, haven't approached any services, incredibly fearful of doing so, incredibly fearful of making themselves known to the authorities, this does offer a very good channel to do it. And civil society organisations like ourselves are a safe place to go and talk about that because we're 
fully confidential. You don't have to give any any details beyond us. We can advise on 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 what the options are that are available to people. So if anybody out there is listening and thinks maybe I qualify for that, maybe this is an opportunity for me to get things back on track. Contact one of the civil society organisations like ourselves at the Migrant Rights Centre or others and get some confidential and free information and advice. Absolutely. And uh, it'll be wonderful uh, to think uh, that we won't be talking about people in that situation in the near future. At least that's the hope uh, and uh, for some, the expectation. Brian, we'll leave there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Brian Kaloran is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Why isn't there a, a walk-in vaccine centre in Drogheda? That's what Colette wants to know. Uh, she is trying to get a, a booster. She went up to the fairways in Dundalk today. Didn't realise it. it was only for people aged 60 to 69. Uh, she's not 60 yet, but she did ask a person in the queue how long she'd been waiting because it was a massive queue, she says. And the woman said to her she'd been waiting a, an hour uh, and she wants to know, why can't you just do this in Drogheda? Uh, well, that's what Jed Nash wants to know. That's uh, what Frankie Fien probably wants to know. Never mind Jed Nash, uh, based on what he said uh, about uh, the test centres, he probably would uh, agree that you should have um, <laughs> a booster centre or a walk-in vaccine centre uh, in Drogheda as well based on his comments as we heard them earlier on in the programme. Thanks Colette for getting in touch. Thanks to Deirdre who thinks the protests in uh, the weekend will only be ho- holding people to ransom and it's going to affect so many. That's on Sunday with the farmers and on Monday with the truckers in Dublin once again. Sean in Drogheda wants uh, to know would the TDs in the town consider opening their offices to allow COVID boosters to be given. It would be much easier for elderly people. Thanks, Sean. I don't think it's finding a place to do it. I think it's finding the staff and all of the logistics that go with it. Uh, Lorraine says, it is a joke that there's no testing centre in Drogheda. My daughter has to go for a test today and I have to travel to Dundalk with her. I imagine that there are some who don't have their own cars who just won't get tested. Thanks Uh, for that Lorraine I'm not sure why you're going to Dundalk for a test it uh, would be our day I would think if you're in Drogheda maybe I'm mistaken but thanks uh, for that Uh, somebody else in uh, touch with us Eamon Victory I think uh, who was asking about uh, the water in Dunlear and surrounding areas Uh, well Obviously, that problem continues. Eamon, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Irish Water saying to us, was it, wasn't it yesterday that they hoped uh, to rectify the problem ASAP and thought they were getting close to it caused by the ammonia, uh, which is a bit of a, a mystery, it would seem, at this stage. But uh, thanks uh, for making contact once again. Somebody else in touch with us about John Mallon, uh, who was talking about smoking or how they're going to introduce that ban in New Zealand for children under the age of 14 and that it'll be a lifetime ban. John wasn't in favour of it and somebody got in touch and said, get that smoker off air. Well, he's a reformed smoker. <laughs> at this stage he uh, gave them up after what was it he said 49 was it 39 or 49 years or something like that Uh, but anyway uh, he's not a a smoker anymore Uh, but uh, Forest Ireland uh, are a group uh, that is supported by the tobacco industry I think but thank you indeed uh, for your call and your text if you have been in touch with us this week that's our programme for the week and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.